Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. If you don't know, um, I think all of us kind of experienced this at some point in time when we were little. Do you, do you remember the time when you didn't understand why your parents wouldn't just buy you everything that you wanted? You remember the time when you realized that like things cost money? When you want to buy them, you can't just go to the store, pick what you want off the shelf and have it. You've got to kind of like prioritize some items. I'll, I'll never forget growing up, my dad was probably one of the cheapest guys on the face of the earth. Frugal Freddy, John Verweel, uh, Lord rest his soul. He wouldn't buy us a thing. And in fact, we would often ask for things over and over again. Dad, I need a new shirt. Can you please take me to the store? I just, man, I'm going through, I'm growing through my shirts. Can I get a new shirt? No. Dad, I would love to have a pack of Skittles when we go to the gas station. Just, man, I'm hungry, I'm starving. No. Dad, I would like a dog. What's the deal? Why can't we have a dog in this house? No, we're not having any dogs. Dad, how about just a turtle or a cat maybe? That'd be great, something. And he's just got, I got used to hearing this refrain so often. It was no, no, no all the time. And so eventually I kind of like just learned and got to the age where I was like, okay, uh, it's not worth the time asking dad for anything. He's just, he's just not going to buy it. And one time I was like, dad, I could use some socks, man. I mean, I'm walking in Wisconsin in the snow with no socks. They're, they're all gone. And I was like, just half a banana, Dad. Half a banana would be great right now. I'm just hungry. I'm trying to make it through my school days. No, figure it out, man. I'm like, all right, whatever. So, so we go, and you can imagine I grew up in this, in this home where we, we had a really nice house in a nice neighborhood, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out, Dad, why in the world do we not have cable television? I know you can afford cable. Like, are you just holding out on us as kids because you can and you need to assert your authority here? Like, what is the deal? And I was convinced that if my dad would just purchase cable and add ESPN, I'd be a much better golfer. I'd be a way better athlete if I could watch those guys throwing dunks down on the court and all these other things. And, and so he never bought us cable. And lo and behold, I go off. Mississippi State University, Starkville, Mississippi, and I take my TV with me. I lug it up to my dorm room, five flights of stairs, carry that thing the whole way, because there's no way me and my dad were waiting for the elevator. I see a cable coming out of the wall. One of the very first things I do is I set that thing up on the table in my dorm room, and I plug that cable in. You remember the uh, channel search feature on the TV? Whenever you, whenever you put the TV on for the very first time, it searches for the channels to see what channels are available to you. Like, all right, let's do the channel search. Goes through there, like 10 minutes later, I've got like 60 channels in my college dorm room. And the most important of all the channels, of course, is ESPN. And for the next half week, I'm sitting there in my dorm room oh my gosh, this is amazing. I go get, I get married. Brandy and I spend time, we go travel, we go to hotels, and still even to this day, I go and turn on ESPN. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
This is unbelievable, ESPN. Like, people have all these channels. It's amazing. And so, just to add insult to injury, the very first month, I'm the youngest in my family, four kids. The very first month, I'm gone out of the house. Guess what my dad does? He buys cable, just to, just to rub it in a little bit. The other thing he bought was a snowblower, and living up in Wisconsin, I was the snowblower. Right when I'm gone to college, he gets the big snowblower. Like, Dad, come on, man. There's something wrong with this picture. Um, we, are, we are almost done with the prophet Habakkuk. And why am I sharing this story with you? I went off to college at ESPN, at cable, at all these great stations. I found myself watching three channels more than any other channel. I watched, of course, Entertainment Sports Network, ESPN. But I also watched a lot of the History Channel. You see these documentaries on the History Channel? My other favorite channel was the Discovery Channel, nature shows. Like, anytime I turn on the TV, History Channel, Nature Channel. We're, we're getting to the end of Habakkuk chapter 3. And it's almost as if, when this prophet closes this book, if he had a TV that he could turn on, it's almost as if we're turning on the History Channel. And he gives us this great history documentary of what God has done in the past in Exodus. And it's almost as if he jumps over to the Nature Channel, the Discovery Channel, and he talks about all of these elements of nature that are so exciting and, and fascinating and unbelievably powerful. So last week we said something that was extremely important to understand in this book. I shared this quote with you. It's from one of my favorite seminary professors. He put it this way. He says, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. And that's a pattern for us that we're going to see, not only in the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk can be divided into, into three easy sections here. You've got dialogue, dirge, and doxology. Each section aligns with the chapters as they're presented to us in the English text. The dialogue is chapter 1. The prophet Habakkuk questions God. God answers him. There's two question answers that go back and forth. The dirge is chapter two. It's more like a, it's kind of like a funeral lament, but it's a taunt song that Israel was given uh, to sing to the Babylonians as they were taking them off into captivity in just, a, just the near future. But finally, this book ends with a doxology. It's a long prayer, but it's a prayer of praise. And so last week, what we said was that Habakkuk was a changed man from the time that his book started to the end of this book. He began as the prophet that questioned God. At the end of the book, he has his answers. He begins with the prophet who is confused. He ends with confidence. At the beginning of the book, he has fear. By the end of the book, he has faith. His doubts at the beginning were transformed into a doxology at the end. When we get to the, the end of chapter 3 here, it's this, just this climactic, culminating prayer of praise from the pen of this prophet Habakkuk. But the interesting thing about this, this prayer is it contains very little requests whatsoever. The prophet Habakkuk isn't asking many things of God at all. In fact, there's only two or three things that you can go back and say, like, here is what Habakkuk is asking God for. Look back at your text. You found him in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you 
and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. That's a, that's a request right there. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Two prayers are to revive his work and to remember mercy. But the vast majority of this prayer in chapter 3, Habakkuk is simply recalling the things that God has done in the past for his people Israel. Everything that God asked for, I just want you to think about this for a second. You've got a prayer that goes 13, 19 verses in chapter 3. Everything that he asks is in less than one verse, in half a verse. All the rest of it, at least for the next 14 verses, Habakkuk's prayer is the history channel and the nature channel. What is going on with that? I want you to look down at verse 3. God came from Taman, Habakkuk 3, verse 3. The Holy One from Mount Paran, His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. God came from Taman. What we said last time is that's a reference to Edom in the southeastern part of the Middle East, southeast of Israel, southeast of the area of Palestine today. The Holy One coming from Paran is the other south. It's the southwest, probably in and around where we believe Mount Sinai would be in the Sinai Peninsula. It depicts God coming up from the south and leading his people north into the land of Israel. It talks about pestilence, plagues, following after the Lord as he comes and as he arrives on the scene. It talks about his, his power being veiled. All of these images are very sharp, drastic reminders of what God did with Israel through the Exodus and leading his people out of slavery in, in Egypt. God arrived in Egypt in the south. He led his people north with glory, miracles, act after act of his sovereignty and his power. The Exodus imagery in Habakkuk chapter 3 is unmistakable and everywhere. You're going to see more of that as we read these verses on down in, in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Skip down to verse 8, and I want to read through verse 11 as we begin. Habakkuk 3 verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Verse 12 begins, you marched through the earth in fury. Now, I've got two questions as we read these verses. Number one, with the Babylonian army on Habakkuk's doorstep, in Israel's doorstep, why is Habakkuk turning to, to Israel's history? Why does he go back and recall what happened to Israel in the past? Why is he remembering more than he's requesting? I can think of what I would probably be doing in that context. I'd probably be asking God a lot of things. God, please come, show us your grace, your power, your might. Do with the Babylonians what you have done to other nations before you. Please rescue us from our plight. Do something about this. 
Instead, Habakkuk gives us a history lesson, or let me ask it this way. As he stares into the face of deep difficulty and suffering that is on the horizon, why is Habakkuk praising God for his work in the past rather than asking God to work in the present and do something? Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers, authors. She's a, she comes from a Southern perspective. Often her stories will depict God and God's grace in really just gripping, fascinating, life-changing ways. I've been deeply impacted by several of her short stories. They're so good. And as a writer, she really struggled to vocalize and to rightfully pen her experiences of God's grace. She knew God personally and deeply, and the gospel of grace absolutely changed her life. As a writer, she wanted to communicate those feelings and those experiences in her short stories and in the things that she was penning. And she would ask over and over again, you can go back and read some of her, her personal prayer diaries and prayer journals, and she would ask God for strength to communicate effectively what she wanted to communicate. In one of her handwritten prayer journals, I think I've got this for you on your screen, she says this is so good. She says, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow. It keeps me from seeing all of the moon. What I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. And then she ends her prayer in this way. I think this is very indicative. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. She's basically asking God, help me get out of the way so that a clearer picture of you can come into my life and into my writing for other people. So here's our question. Why is Habakkuk remembering God more than requesting of God? And one of the answers that we have to come away with when we understand Scripture, understand God, and really our prayer and our praise life is that God knowledge is always accompanied by self-knowledge. God knowledge is always accompanied by self-knowledge. When we learn more about God, that should enable us to look back into the mirror and learn more about ourselves. How much we need God, how much we depend on God and rely upon Him for everything that we have. A bigger view of God should give us a smaller view of self. Flannery O'Connor knows that. She wants this view of God to be clear. When Habakkuk learned more about what God has done and is doing in the present tense, it was an entryway into his heart. God was revealing himself to this prophet that would otherwise be unknown in Israel. The reason we read remembering in this context more than requesting is that Habakkuk is not praying for God to change his will. He's praying for God to change his heart, Habakkuk's heart, to align his heart and his will with God's heart and God's will. One of my favorite pastors put it this way, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will to his. The basic purpose of prayer is to not bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will to his. We don't see a lot of requests in this prayer because Habakkuk didn't need his circumstances to change. He needed his heart to change. He needed his view of God to change. And so God did whatever was necessary for him to come to a deeper knowledge of who God was. 
in his heart and in his life. So this is a really deep, profound experience for this prophet. And it teaches us a lot about worship. It teaches us a lot about the circumstances that we go through when we constantly ask God, if you're anything like me, when you go through difficulty and suffering, God, show up. Do something. Change the circumstance, please. I'm asking you to reveal yourself and work in this specific situation. God, why are you delaying? Why are you not working? Let me just ask you a really important question. Is God still worthy of your worship if you don't get what you want? Is God still worthy of your worship and praise if he doesn't do what you want him to do when you want him to do it? Isn't that the essence of worship? That we would worship God for who he is, not for what he can give us? Isn't that what God wants of us? More of him, less of us, using any experience and circumstance for that outcome? Isn't that one of the great purposes why we suffer and go through difficulties in life? Tim Keller, in his book on prayers, outstanding, he says, prayer and praise are not merely a way to get things from God, but a way of getting more of God himself. Why is Habakkuk all of a sudden becoming a history teacher? Why is Habakkuk turning on the History Channel for us? It's really simple. Simple. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he's going to do in the future, though he is too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. The second question I have when I read these scriptures, just as important, why all the references to nature? We've seen the History Channel. Why are we getting the Nature Channel? Why are we getting the Discovery Channel now? I want you to just look down in your text. I'm going to scroll through this a little bit. Look down at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers? You've got three mentions of rivers, two in verse 8, one in verse 9. You've got a reference to the sea in these verses. You've got a reference to the raging waters, the deep, deep portions of the sea, the sun and the moon, all in these seemingly just four short verses, rivers, sea, raging waters, deep sun, moon, over and over again, we're getting these elements of God's creation all the things that are are depicted for us through what God has created. Some commentators believe that God is simply pursuing his people's enemies using elements of nature. So we can bring the ancient Near Eastern understanding to this passage and see a little bit deeper maybe what God is trying to do here. Look down at at the end of verse 8. It says, "...your indignation against the sea." The sea is often personified and depicted as a a reference to evil in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for sea is yam. In the ancient Near East, there's actually a a god, a pagan god, that is named yam. It was a, a Canaanite god Baal overcame yam in some of the ancient Near Eastern literature that we read. The same is true of the deep. Look at verse 10. The mountain saw you and writhed, raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. That's the Hebrew word to home. Also, a personal name for evil residing in deep, dark places of God's creation. So God's wrath and indignation was against Babylon because Babylon gods were depicted by Tahom and Marduk. And they overcame these forces of evil when you look at their, their myths. But when you look at the Old Testament, 
you see God miraculously working through nature, uh, using nature over and over again to deliver his people as a, a reference for his glory, for his majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, earth, the, the night and the stars pour forth speech. Day to day reveals speech. Night to night reveals knowledge as, as Psalm 19. Let me just give you a, a couple other references to this because this is common. This is quintessential Old Testament prophets when you read it. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of ne Lebanon withers. Mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Nahum tells us that God controls nature. He has power over it. He has authority over it. Much like Psalm 19. This verse is just referred to. Look at Micah chapter 1. You might write some of these verses in the margins of your Bible here in Habakkuk. Verse 3 and 4, Micah 1. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. Valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. Micah tells us that nature does God's bidding. It responds appropriately to God. Over and over again, you see nature being called as a witness to God's covenant and God's promises. It obeys God. It does what God tells it to do because God is supreme. He has the authority over nature. And Nahum and Micah are very similar to Habakkuk, but not quite as similar as what you find in the Exodus account. I want you to hold your place here in Habakkuk 3. Turn back to Exodus chapter 15. Hold your place in Habakkuk 3 and turn to Exodus 15. <clears throat> Exodus 15 is a pivotal, pivotal chapter in the book of Exodus. This is after the Red Sea crossing. The people of Israel, and they sing a song. It's a, it's a Moses celebration song after the deliverance that God gave them from Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. Exodus 15, verse 1. I'm just going to read 10 verses really quick. Follow along with me. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, the deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, de my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Exodus 15 tells us that God employs the forces of nature to defeat his enemies. God employs the forces of nature, forces of nature to defeat his enemies. Looking back at Habakkuk in chapter 3, you've got several specific references to this. <clears throat> Excuse me. In verse 8, Habakkuk chapter 3, the chariots of God's salvation are riding on top of the waters. He is a general coming after his enemies, leading his armies in battle. In verse 9, rain fell from the skies like arrows from the bow of God and the quiver of God. In verse 11, Habakkuk 3, lightning flashes like a divine spear, seeking out its enemies and hitting directly from God's armory. The prophet said that God used nature when he redeemed his people from Egypt, and he will use nature again to redeem his people from Babylon. It's one of, the, one of the great themes that you have, not only here in Habakkuk with the people in this context for the nation of Israel, but throughout the Old Testament. The Exodus established a quintessential redemptive event in the history of Israel. And every other deliverance and redemptive event for God's people will echo and be patterned after that Exodus event. This is no different than what we're reading in Habakkuk 3 for Babylon now. It's just a different nation. Israel's exodus from Egypt was their identity. It was the central act that God used them to free them from slavery and to bring them into a land that he had given them. If you were to ask an Old Testament saint about their God, here's how they would respond. Our God is the one who delivered us from slavery in Egypt. He is the one who came with plagues and pestilence and overcame an army stronger than we were. He is the one that rescued us from the Red Sea crossing. This is the high watermark of salvation and redemption for the people of Israel and the people of God. You see themes of God delivering through water, bringing his people to a place where they have nothing that they can do except to turn to God and plea and ask for his deliverance. Back to the question, why all the references to nature? What is God using and doing with nature in this context and all throughout the Bible. Folks, no human being can take credit for God's redemption and salvation and deliverance. Nobody in Israel, not a prophet, not a deliverer, not an army general, nobody is going to be able to say, we were delivered because of our strength, our might, and our power. God uses nature as an instrument for deliverance for his people to establish the fact that he and he alone saves his people. He is the mighty one who delivers them when everything around them looks like they are going to die and there is no hope whatsoever. God shows up in a miraculous way and he makes sure that no human being is going to get credit for salvation. That this deliverance is because of the mighty hand of God, his grace and his mercy for people that do not deserve it over and over again in the Old Testament. Look down at verse 12, Habakkuk chapter 3. You marched through the earth in fury. I want you to pay special attention to the verbs here. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's a reference to the Davidic king, the, the kingly line that came from David. 
End of verse 13, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The prophet now shifts here. He goes from nations, or he goes from nature, excuse me, to nations as he ends this. He goes from using nature, his objects of his instruments and of wrath and controlling and power of them, to how he deals with people now, and specifically nations. I want you to pay special attention, though, to the verbs. Verse 12 says this, God marched and he threshed. It depicts God moving across the earth in anger. And he's not walking, he's not running, he's specifically marching. That's what armies do. That's what a military force does. I love what one commentator says. When God arrives on the scene for his people to rescue them for the Babylonians, he's not tiptoeing in the tulips. He's marching. His wrath and his anger comes with him against his enemies. Threshing reminded the Israelites of an everyday occurrence in an agrarian culture. Uh, the grain was threshed on a daily basis, but threshing it also in the Old Testament is a, a symbolic action of judgment. You're grinding away the things that don't belong, and you're throwing them to the side. You're keeping the things that do belong. As the Israelites threshed the grain, the chaff would be separated from the actual grain itself. It depicts a, a strong judgment. It's very similar to trampling in verse 15. The verb that you have there, an action of God's terrifying judgment. Look down at verse 14. It says, God will pierce the heads of enemy warriors with their own arrows. When uh, Brandy and I were in seminary, uh, we tried to get off through seminary as far along as possible, at least, without having any children. We kind of give ourselves fully into the study and uh, where God had us in life. And lo and behold, about three years in, surprise, here comes a Henry. And uh, had a lot of really good friends at the seminary, worked with several of them, some of the older mentors in my life. We'd go to them and I'd talk to them. I was a first-time dad, trying to graduate seminary at the same time and figure out this whole thing about like changing diapers. And Brad and Scott, and some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It was, uh, it was, I needed a lot of help when I was in seminary. I'll never forget one of the things that Henry loved to do uh, when he was a little kid is, is he would, we had him in a crib for a while, but by the time he turned about, it was about a year and a half or so, a little bit over a year, Henry just, he decided like, I'm done with this crib. Um, I'm just, you can keep it in the room if you want, but I'm not going to lay in it. And so we would put him in the crib at night and it was like, you know, we're going to keep you in the crib as long as you can because we don't want you running out of your room and, and you're safe there, you're comfortable there, you're going to sleep good there. We would go, we put him down in the crib, and literally before we could get out of his room and shut the door behind us, he had crawled on the top of that thing and was doing these great swan dives to get out of the crib and basically landing on his head on the floor. And he's just like, hey, I'm going to take a couple bruises and bumps. I don't want to be in this crib. It's a small price to pay. I'm getting out of this crib. You guys, parents, you guys have this experience before? Finally, Brandy and I are like, what do we do here? Like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. This kid's going to break his neck doing swan dives out of the crib. So we decided we'd take his mattress out of the crib and just put it on the floor 
His swan dive, he could just roll over instead and not get all these bumps and bruises. But I, I went to a couple guys at seminary. I'm like, okay, guys, I got an issue. My kid is jumping out of the crib, like jumping Jehoshaphat, and I need to do something about it. And so one of, the, one of my mentors, Glenn Monroe, I'll never forget what he said. He said, Jared, with all of our kids, here's what I learned to do at a very early age. When you're disciplining them, he said, make the punishment fit the crime. So what he meant by that is, if your kids are using their feet to sin and do what they shouldn't be doing outside of your will and outside of your authority, you punish the feet. If they're using their mouth to say something that they shouldn't be saying, that's sinful, the punishment goes to the mouth. Maybe it's soap in the mouth, something like that. You gotta be quiet for a while and not open your mouth. I don't know what it is, but he said, make the punishment fit the crime. I'll never forget it. And so oftentimes, that's exactly what we did with our discipline. You sin with your hands, you push somebody, you, you do something that you shouldn't be doing, we're going to punish the hands. And that worked for us for a while. Um, verse 14, God will pierce the heads of enemy warriors with their own arrows. With God's justice, the punishment always fits the crime. Y'all remember Haman in the book of Esther? Haman was the guy that was determined to exterminate the race of the Jews. He wanted to get rid of them entirely, and so he built this huge gallows right there. He was going to kill as many of them as possible. By the end of the book, guess who was hung on those gallows? Haman himself. The punishment fit the crime. Remember Daniel's enemies? Remember Daniel, what they did with him? Threw him in a lion's den? Remember who ended up in that lion's den before it was all said and done? The punishment fit the crime. God will allow his enemies to set their own traps. God will allow his enemies to set their own traps and have to deal with it. And here again, we see the deliverance and the salvation of God. What do we do with this text? Number one, there's a biblical principle that I want you guys all to know. It's very simple. You see it all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. What the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament reveals. What the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament reveals. The fog of what is given to us in the Old Testament is lifted by the time you get to the New Testament. In Christ and what's revealed for us in the word that he has given to us. At Dallas Seminary, they had a statement of faith about Scripture, and here's part of what it said. It said, We believe that all the Scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and his work, in his first coming and in his second coming. And hence, no portion of Scripture is rightfully or fully understood apart from its complete fulfillment in Christ until it leads to him. I want to look down at your text at Habakkuk 3, verse 13. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Then it says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Literally, you smashed the head of the house of the wicked, laying bare the foundation to the neck. God's defeat of the Egyptians was captured by the death of Pharaoh in his army. He was the head. God's defeat of the Babylonians will be captured by the death of the Babylonian king. 
He is the head. God's defeat of sin and evil will be depicted by the death of Satan, who is the beginning and the head of evil and wickedness. What the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament reveals. When you read this verse, you should think Genesis 3.15 all over the place. You will bruise him on the head, but he will crush you. You will bruise him on the heel, but he will crush you on the head. It is the very first gospel that is given in Scripture. This is a direct reference to it, what we're reading in Habakkuk chapter 3. What the Old Testament conceals, the New Testament reveals. Number two, the central aspect of this passage is that God is planning a new exodus. He delivers people through an exodus in the Old Testament. Now there's going to be another, a new exodus for the people of God. And it's important to remember that this passage, we won't go into this a ton until next week, all right? But redemption for God is both a coming out and a going in. I want you to think about this. Redemption from Egypt was not just coming out of Egypt. It was also going into the presence of God and into the land that he had given to his people. Redemption from Babylonian captivity was not just being delivered from the slavery that the Babylonians imposed. It was actually going out into Jerusalem, back into the city that God had given them. Redemption is both a going out and a coming in. And as Christians, we tend to get the going out part right. We tend to believe in Jesus, put our faith in him. We are going out from our sin. We are delivered from our sin. We are delivered from our past, some of our sinful tendencies. God gives us victory and a deliverance from that, but we struggle with the coming in part. In redemption, God both gives us a prerogative and a direction to go out, but also to come into something to come into his presence, but also to come into a new redeemed humanity, gathered together for the purpose of carrying out God's will, worshiping together, both independently and collectively. When God redeems us, he redeems us for a purpose. We, are, we have been redeemed past tense, but we are also being redeemed present tense. And as part of that redemption, he brings us out of sin, but he also brings us into something brings us into a group of people, a community, a redeemed community, to do life with, to walk with God with, to fight sin with, people to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to pray for us, to fellowship with, to celebrate the times of, of baptisms and taking the Lord's Supper together with them. God has given us a, a people general people, that all believers everywhere at all times are depicted in this thing called church, but also specific people that are given to a local church right here at Tulsa Bible Church. There's a local group of people. We have redeemed, been redeemed from something in order that we might come into something, and we might live the Christian life together, not in isolation or independently, but with people who care about us who love us, who can serve together with us, who can teach us more about what it means to be made in the image of God and be more made into that image on a daily basis 
and being conformed more and more into his likeness, his holiness, his goodness, and his grace. As believers, we need to understand that the significance of being redeemed from something is just as important as the significance of coming into something, of doing life with fellow believers in a way that will give us success in the Christian life and please the Lord every step of the way. We're going to finish Habakkuk chapter 3 next week. It's a great poem, probably the most memorable at the end of this book. I want to encourage you to come back for that. Also, uh, don't forget to go online if you want to register for that missions dinner. I believe it's June 11th, Saturday, that Kyle was talking about. Go online and make sure you make a reservation for that so we can buy the right amount of food as we look to our missions week as well. Let me pray. I'm going to pray for the food that we're about to partake of as well so you guys can go out there and enjoy this right away. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again uh, for your love, for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you for these times that we can just gather together and have fellowship and fun together, get to know one another better. Lord, I pray that's exactly what would happen at our picnic today. Um, Thank you for the food. Thank you for all the people serving it, taking the time to prepare it for us. Um, Pray that you would bless it. Let's bless our time together this afternoon. Lord, uh, help us to deepen our relationships and have meaningful conversations with one another. Help us to have fun with one another and enjoy the the fellowship of the body of Christ. God, as we we wrap up this small little prophet of Habakkuk, I pray that you would take the truths that we're learning about what you've done for us in the past in order to build and strengthen our faith for you in the present and to look more hopefully for you in the future. Help us to understand that the model of redemption that you have set for us, not only in Egypt and delivering your people out of slavery, but most clearly depicted in Jesus and his deliverance from us out of the slavery of sin into a peaceful and perfect relationship with you. Thank you for your reconciliation. Thank you for what you have done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. I thank you that none of us will be able to stand up here and say that we had a, a something strong in us or um, beautiful or valuable in us that caused us to be redeemed. You have done it for us, God. It is all in your power and in your grace. And we love you all the more for it. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the, through the Son and by the Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen.